recent Pew study asked this question, why do people go to church? And 80% of responders said to feel closer to God. Now, that seems like a pretty good answer, right? You know, we, we're here because we want to feel closer to God. A uh, significant percentage, 25%, said to make my spouse happy. In other words, one spouse was into church, the other not so much, but for the sake of unity in the marriage, that's how that went. Uh, others would say, to the tune of 70%, so my kids will learn ethical principles and be moral. So I think the concept is kind of free-range parenting, during the week, but you bring them to church and hope that they pick something up, you know, so that they grow into well-adjusted human beings, all that. These aren't necessarily bad motivations, and it's understandable why we're confused about why go to church, why be a part of a church, because nowhere in Scripture does it verbatim tell you this is why you go to church, but we are given a primary purpose of what the church is meant to be and why we are supposed to attend. If you're taking notes, this is just by way of review, we're going to uh, just say this. The church exists to show people who Jesus Christ is. That's what we're here for. We're, we're here to illuminate Jesus Christ. Where are we getting that? We're getting that from uh, a part of the Bible that, honestly, most people find pretty boring. I love Scripture, and I, if I'm honest, find this a little dull. It's a very detailed description, Exodus chapter 25, about the tent of meeting. So God essentially tells Moses, hey, on this road trip that we're taking with these people that I've just rescued from slavery, the, from the Egyptian bondage, now that I have this people that I'm trying to introduce to the entire world what I'm like through a relationship with this people, let's do this, Moses. Why don't you build a little worship facility? It'll be portable. It'll be made out of uh, a tent-like material, and we'll call it the tent of meeting. And then he goes on in Exodus 25 to give incredible detail, incredible amounts of detail. So, for example, uh, 25, 23, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, a cubit and a half high. It's similar to this table. Uh, it's not round, it looks like. And then make around it a rim, a hand breadth wide, and put a gold molding on the rim. So you're overlaying the table with gold. Gold in the ancient world symbolizes something special, different, perfect, pure, and holy. And so God is basically telling Moses, not only are you going to make a tent, you're going to have some furniture in that tent, and each piece will have symbolic meaning. And, and this is called the table of the presence. On the table, there will be bread, the bread of the presence. And the bread will represent for all my people that I will always provide, that I'm with you, that I'm the source and the sustainer of all of life. And then he goes on, and then he says, if we can skip down to verse 31, make a lamp stand of pure gold and hammer it out, base and shaft, it's flower-like cups, buds and blossoms. So really, we don't have a lot of flower uh, detail here. This is not gold, and it looks very different. The Hebrew word for a lampstand is menorah. So if you've seen a menorah, that's essentially what is being made here. It has seven different little lamps on it. How odd. What, what's with the seven? Well, in the ancient world, seven means perfection, completeness. And so there's all this symbolism. God's using cultural realities of the people he's working with, and he's speaking their language. Isn't that how God relates to you and me? He speaks to us in ways that we understand. And so as we 
look back, here's the really fascinating part. This is the very beginning of, of the story, almost. We have Genesis before that. But then if you skip all the way to the book of Revelations, there is this incredible, vivid experience that a man named the Apostle John has. He has an encounter with Jesus. And let me just read a few uh, verses from this. It almost comes across like an acid trip-like experience. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patience endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God. So he has been exiled there. Christianity is under attack. And the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Weird. We just read about that in Exodus. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This is language that people use when they encounter an angel. It's used in the book of Daniel to describe the person walking around the fiery furnace with the three that were surviving. So bright, hard to distinguish. And then he goes on to explain. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This is really fascinating. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen do you realize he's encountering Jesus here? This is incredible. And Jesus is standing among this lampstand that was described. And then, chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. I have found them false. You have persevered. You've endured hardships for my name and not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. What is going on here, Mercy Road Church? Don't you see that John is actually referring to the lampstands and Jesus. And John, in John's mind, the lampstands clearly represent the role of the church. Each church that he's called to write to, there's seven of them, have a personalized message. And the first church gets a report card, and it's kind of like you're doing pretty good, except here's what you're really missing. You're drifting away from the central purpose for which church exists. You've forsaken your first love. Church has always been about a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It's always been cast in Scripture as a lamp in the tented meeting that is directly placed in front of the table of the presence, and the priests were to very specifically spotlight the bread of the presence. That's what Exodus says. 
And then John, much later in Revelation, says, keep up the good work, church, but don't miss the main purpose for which you're created. You're created for a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're created for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this is where we get this phrase, this peculiar phrase, don't move the lampstand. Don't spotlight something other than Jesus Christ. And you've seen Mission Drift, haven't you? Think about the YMCA, for example. I like the Y. I work out at the Y. But it was really started as this Christ-based discipleship method, and, and now it's kind of a nice gym in an affordable price range, right? And they do more than that. They do youth programs, and that's great. But organizations over time really, if we're not careful, can drift away from the, the central purpose that animates us. I don't think we've done that at Mercy Road, but it excites me to have this vocabulary just in our church so that when we make decisions, should we spend money on this? Should we do this? Should we have a com campaign to do this? Should we partner with them? We can say, I don't know. Would that be moving the lampstand? Would it be taking the spotlight off of the central purpose, namely the presence of God? Would this thing that we're about to do in a direct or indirect way show people who Jesus Christ is? I had a great time in San Diego, and uh, Pastor Bill Boleyn spoke to you. How many of you enjoyed Bill's message and his uh, remarks about um, activities in San Diego? <laughs> thank, thank you, Pastor Bill. You're, uh, I think it's 1.9, 1,900 views already online, so thanks for that. Uh, anyways, uh, among the great things about San Diego um, was a really moving testimony. It was a conference for World Vision. We partner with World Vision because we believe they're highly effective and helping the, the global poor, and they just do such a good job. And so this is a pastor's gathering, pastors and spouses. There's 800 people there, and Cece Winans did the music. She's the most popular gospel uh, singer, female gospel artist of all time. It was wonderful, great speakers, but the best speaker was someone who didn't even speak English, and I can't pronounce nor remember her name. There was kind of a silence, a hush, when she got on the stage because she was missing one hand. And she had kind of a deformity on her face. It looked like a, a wound from, from a sword or something. She was African. And through a translator, she told us a testimony about the power of forgiveness. Now, it was later in the conference, so, you know, you're kind of tired of hearing people talk, but, but for a moment, I felt like I could listen to this woman all day. She told me, she told us that... She was a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 when people came into her village and just slaughtered an entire people group. She was clutching her nine-month-old baby girl when the attack happened. And an attacker grabbed the baby right from her arms, pulled from the mother's arms and cut, cut her in half, killed the child. Proceeded to cut this woman's hand off with a few strokes of the machete, assumed she was dead. She played dead, survived for two or three weeks in a swamp before World Vision came in in 1994. Some of you might not know World Vision has a reconciliation arm to their ministry where they send people to the most hostile places on the planet. And they use Christians on the ground on both sides of the conflict to bring people together. This woman would go on in the next few weeks to meet the one who attacked 
And when she saw him, she fainted out of trauma, pure trauma. And then she said something just absolutely unbelievable. You could tell it was moving because the translator paused before she said it. Like, is that true? She said, I was embarrassed to say, or I am embarrassed to say that it took me a full week to forgive my attacker. But because Jesus Christ has forgiven me, the only thing I can do is forgive. She would go on to lead this man who slaughtered her child in front of her and killed her, left her for dead, to lead him to the Lord and to, when he was put in prison for his crimes, ensure that his children were sponsored through World Vision so that they would be taken care of. If you want to see a group of 800 pastors completely silent, which is kind of a miracle if you think about it, just bring this woman up and tell that story. Why do I share that? I share that because we're not playing religion. There is a power here in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is nuclear. It is red hot. It is electric. And it's the only thing that could explain why a woman could forgive even that. When the church is on its game, when the church that is a lampstand is shining the light on Jesus, things like that will happen. And when a woman does something like that, how do people not notice? Because that is not how the world operates. That is not how we instinctively respond to injustice. That mercy is too costly in human terms. Only God could do that. Here's another way to think of all this as we talk about this lampstand business. We naturally illuminate what we're devoted to. Isn't that true? If, if you don't think it's true, just go find a teenager who is in love. Have you, have you seen that? Do you remember when you were a teenager and you were in love? You just have that awkward look on your face that's permanent, kind of. I'm, I'm seeing a parent of a teenager that may qualify. I don't know. And they can't stop talking about him, her. And it's obnoxious, but they illuminate the object that they're devoted to. They really do. And it's not just teenagers in love. It can be hobbies. My dad loves golf so much. And I think if he had a magic wand, he would use it to make me love golf as much as he loves golf. I like golf, but I am not devoted to golf. I'll play three to five times a year, and it bothers him because I'm naturally fairly good at the game. And he goes, you could be really good at this game. And I say, yeah, but it's kind of a white little ball in a field, and, and I'm kind of good after eight holes, not even nine, you know. And he, he'd play 36 a day. So guess what I got for Christmas? <laughs> guess what I've gotten for every Christmas? Golf paraphernalia. I have golf balls and golf gloves. I've never purchased a club in my life, but I have more clubs than most of you. Whatever you're devoted to, you naturally illuminate. It, can't, it just kind of bubbles up out of you. Any of you ladies into essential oils? Don't answer. We know. We know! Because you can't stop talking. You know there's an oil for that. You can rub that on your big toe and it'll cure cancer. Sweet, you know? I mean, 
whatever we're into, you, you binge watch that thing on Netflix, and then you binge promote that thing to everyone else who has a Netflix account. Have you seen this? Did you, did you watch that yet? Did you see this episode? No, not yet, but I will. So you stop illuminating this thing that you're devoted to. I do it too. I'm, I'm evangelical about all sorts of things. You, you know that is true if you attend this. I, I don't think I can preach three sermons in a row without a bacon reference. Whatever. We all have our thing. But I guess the serious question is, if we say we're devoted to Jesus, does that bubble up out of us? Do we talk about Jesus? And through our obedience to the commands of Jesus, because some of them are very countercultural, do people take notice? Like 800 pastors were brought to complete awe and silence over the forgiving love that was funneled through a poor Rwandan refugee? Are we illuminating Jesus in our own individual lives? You see, if the purpose of church is to feel closer to God or to have well-adjusted kids or to make your spouse happy or, or just to kind of go because you feel like better about yourself or to achieve greater self-awareness, if, if those are the primary purposes of church, I don't think we're going to illuminate Jesus. I don't think we're going to talk about Jesus. I don't think we're going to really take serious the commands of Jesus. But if the whole purpose of my life and the purpose of church membership and the church attendance thing is solely and first and foremost to show people who Jesus Christ is because we believe that every human being one day will take a knee and acknowledge the simple fact that he is behind all of reality. He is the Lord. If that's the purpose, people are going to start to notice. So are they? What are we devoted to, Mercy Road Church? We're given a template. And Bill talked about this last week. In the book of Acts, I'd like to just refresh your memory very briefly. We illuminate Jesus as we devote ourselves to a few things. Biblical truth and application. This is just coming from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And there was this pattern of activity that happened in the early church where people are, are coming to put their faith in Jesus and were given a template by which we can learn. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Let's just briefly, as we close, talk about each one of these biblical truth and application. Why do we come and hear somebody talk about the Bible? Because the apostles were devoted to biblical knowledge and understanding. You don't need to go home and read your Bible so that God will like you more. He already loves you more than you even suspect. And no amount of Bible study or Bible classes or seminary degrees adds or detracts from that. We read our Bible so that we get to know this God who loves us so much.
so that we get to know his heart, his character, so that we know the story arc that we are all a part of as we are individually and corporately being freed from slavery and bondage into his perfect presence, into a promised land that awaits us. We are devoted to biblical truth and application for the same reason we make sure we have headlights in our vehicle. It's a dark world out there, and we need to see where we're going, and we need wisdom. But it's not just biblical truth and application. It's the sacrificial and loving community that Acts 2.42 talks about. Sacrificial. I, I remember um, when my wife and I were talking about how, how much money we wanted to give to our church. This was before I was working at a church. And she had a percentage in mind, and I had a percentage in mind. Mine was a little smaller than her percentage, and I was like, slow down there, you know. Let's, let's be reasonable. Come on, come on. Have you had that conversation before? And, and I was listening to uh, a pastor, Tim Keller, uh, who I, I love to listen to still to this day, and I was on a run, and he said something in a sermon that just kind of pierced my heart. He said, the, the call for Christians is not to give 10% of their money or 1% or 20%. It's, the percentage is not there in the New Testament explicitly because the new model is sacrificial giving. And I'm like, yep, yep, that's right. I was in seminary at the time. I was in that obnoxious part of seminary where I would listen to men and women who were much better preachers than me on podcasts, and then I would just agree with, yep, yep, we're on the same page. That's how I would have said that, right? You know, I was kind of a know-it-all, not a learn-it-all, and all of a sudden I learned a lot by the next comment. He said, here's the problem, though. If you think you're giving sacrificially and it doesn't change the house that you live in, the car that you drive, the clothes that you wear, how often you vacation, where you go out to eat. If, if there isn't ever any moment where it's like, I'd like to have this or I'd like to get a better version of this, but oh, that would get in the way of the privilege to participate in God's meeting the needs of other people, then you're giving. You might even be really generous, but it, just don't call it sacrificial giving because it's literally not a sacrifice. And I thought, Oh, she's right. Which was the beginning of many later. Oh, she's right. She's right. And so we went with her percentage. This does illuminate Jesus. You see, when people are sacrificially generous, our consumer-driven world doesn't get it. We're generous when it's a nice tax write-off, when it kicks back in our favor, when we get credit, when it opens up a door. That's how the world is generous. That's how America is generous. That's how normal human beings are generous, apart from the animating spirit of God living in them, apart from the model of the cross of Jesus Christ. But when people are generous with no strings, and they are generous in eye-popping ways, and they are generous to people who don't deserve any generosity, like someone who would rip a baby from another person's arm and kill that baby in front of the mother. When that generosity happens, Jesus Christ is illuminated, and people say, this is something different. Oh, that we would be a church that would be radically generous. One of the ways that recently we're considering doing this, I got a call from the Gold Star uh, director of the state of Minnesota. She works with all the Gold Star families. These are families who have lost a loved one in combat in the military. And she said, you know, we have a retreat for all these families once a year that the government pays for, but it's such a tight-knit community, and they're so hurting. 
I'd love to have another one. We just don't have any funds for it. And would you just be in prayer about, we would just need a really good facility and we would need free childcare. They've got a lot of kids and we would need money to pay for a speaker to come in. And it would cost this much and it would do this much. And without calling our board, I said, we'll do it. <laughs> Sorry, board. We can talk about it. And, and I just thought to myself, we're going to do that whether I have to pay for it personally or the church is going to pay for it. or It's just going to happen because it's so exciting, church, to provide for people who have real needs in ways that illuminate Jesus Christ. It's the best part of being alive in many ways. We're not just committed to biblical truth in this early church community that's illuminating Jesus. We're not just sacrificial, loving community. We're also life and relationships that are powered by prayer. That's an interesting phrase. It just talks over and over about how they get together for prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. My kids, you know, have gotten into the phase where they don't like praying before food. They used to, and they'd fight over it, which was kind of a weird dynamic where it's like, well, you're really fighting and being mean to your brother and sister because you want to pray and you don't want them to pray. And they would pray long and I'd be like, okay, lay in the plane, you know. And now they don't want to pray. And I hope they move back into some sort of middle ground where they want to pray. The question, I guess, that is brought before us, are we devoted to prayer at this church? Because if your life and your relationship is fueled, powered by prayer, it goes so differently, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? Have you ever been in a season of your life where you just weren't sure, you needed wisdom, and rather than just exerting more effort to try to do it yourself, you just said, God, I, I don't know. Would you direct me? You just waited on God for a while? Life goes so differently. Relationships work so much better when they're powered by prayer. This is so much the case that the scriptures tell us to pray without ceasing. How is that even possible? I mean, wouldn't you be like a crazy person if you're at a drive-thru and you're just like, I'll have a number seven, dear God, thank you for that. And I, you know, you're praying while you're trying to talk with people and parent and go to the bathroom. And you, what, you can't just pray all the time, or can you? Is it possible to always be connected, just like your cell phone's always connected to Wi-Fi? What would that look like if our church in 2020 grew in, in an area of prayer? Would it be more prayer meetings? Maybe. It also might just be a lot of individuals stopping and praying for each other immediately. Do you ever notice that, that thing where it's like, yeah, you could, would you pray for me? I, I'm struggling with this. And then you say, no, I would never pray for you. No, of course you say, I will pray for you. Yes, I'll pray for you. And then you never do because you forget. How odd is that? If prayer is something that's actually a little more transactional than that, like Apple Pay on your phone, you can just click it and the, the bill is paid. What if prayer is that powerful in certain circumstances? Then it would be like someone saying, could you send me some funds because I, I have a debt I can't pay? And you'd be like, sure, I'll totally do it. And then you never do it. That would, that would be mean, right? So here's how we could change to make sure we don't forget to pray. What if every time someone said, would you pray for me? It just shut everything down. Yep, let's pray right now. Wouldn't even have to be that long of a prayer. Can you imagine walking in a church like this and you're trying to get to the coffee 
and you see that blueberry muffin, and you see the other person going for it, but then someone intersects and says, oh, how's it going? Oh, it's going well, it's going well. Hey, could you pray for me? Ooh. Yes. I'm going to sacrificially give up that blueberry muffin. Oh, that, that pastor's kid is going for it. And I'm just going to pray for you, even if it feels weird. Would you mind if I prayed for you right now? Oh, sure. I thought this interaction was different. I thought you were just going to agree to pray for me and then not, never pray for me. I, okay, sure. Dear God, I just, you know what's going on. I pray for this person. Wouldn't that illuminate Jesus? I think it did. And I think that is why the church has bulleted through human history and grown out of total obscurity to be the largest belief system on planet Earth. Not just biblical truth, not just sacrifice in loving community, not just life and relationships powered by prayer, but the early church that shined their light on Jesus were sacrificially generous in serving others. And, and I put that in there because in the text, there's a sense in which it's not talking about money at this point. It's talking about time time. And as Americans, we so understand this. Don't you think that time is the most valuable resource we all have? Because you can always make more money, but you have no idea how much time you have. It's very possible you won't be back next week to hear me preach because you've ran out of time and you will face Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and you will I'm not trying to scare you, but we just don't know. I just did a funeral. That's why I'm missing my beard. I had to wear my military uniform, and yes, my face is cold. Time. I'm going to say it like 10 more times until you get so nervous, you look at your watch, and you think, yes, time, like end the sermon, right? But, but seriously, it, we're given a picture in the early church of people making time for other people. Like, it's just like, sure, I'll show up. I'll serve. Corinne shared about sharing in kids' ministry. Do you know that this church is an anomaly when you talk to other churches our size? Most churches that have kids' ministry programs that are this robust have at least two services because people, the experts say, you can't pull this off, what you're trying to do here with one service because people won't sacrificially give up their time to be in service once a month. I've heard those experts say that for years, and yet, you do it. Our kids are made a priority here. You're not afraid to sacrifice time. As I look around, I just see so many people who evidence this. They have put hours and hours and hours and hours on the altar of worship for this church. It's like there's nothing that I could ask of you you wouldn't show up and do, not because of me, but because you get the sense that the light that is the church, illuminates Jesus, is on mission when you give sacrificially of your time. A natural implication of this is that we consistently gather for worship and friendship. Did you, did you notice in Acts 2.42, it said, in the temple courts and in homes. So there's this rhythm of larger church gatherings like this, but also small group gathering. We're going to have a small group launch coming up. If you're not in a small group, why? Why don't you want to be known? and go deeper? Do you have deep friendships that are consistent? Maybe today, an application of today's message is 
I need to rekindle this friendship. I need to reach out to this person. I need more consistency in my gathering. My prayer for 2020 is that our church grows in corporate worship consistency. We do a pretty good job, but the average stats, you've heard it before from the Barna group, are 1.4 times a month is what people report if they go to church. Yeah, I regularly go to church, as in I go 1.4 times a month. I mean, that's kind of crazy if you really think about it. And, and here's where I'll get real with you. If I wasn't a pastor, if I didn't need to be here all the time, I'm not so sure I wouldn't be tempted to just kind of go with the cultural current of going to church when I felt like it. I mean, I do this with the gym when I feel like it. That's kind of my gym routine, and that's why sometimes my weight goes up and down, because sometimes I don't feel like it for a few months, right? And then I feel like it a little more. We all agree that it's important to work out and take care of our body. Don't we all agree, though, in theory, that it's even more important to shine the light on who Jesus Christ is? What if it's possible that if you attended Mercy Road once a month, you just up that to twice a month, your mere presence being here would have a profound ripple effect over the course of a year on 10 people who would never have been impacted by you. What if that little movement over time led someone to the Lord? What if that little movement impacted a child because part of that attendance was serving in children's ministry and in 45 years, when that child is an adult and they get a cancer diagnosis and they're going through the most incredible, painful thing in their marriage that they've ever gone through, they remember distinctly you and your face in a conversation you had with them about how they matter to Jesus. And they go back to church and their marriage is saved and their children are different for it and they face cancer bravely and they lead others to the Lord and it all started because you decided to be a little more consistent. Mercy Road, I am honored and just, I feel a real privilege to be your pastor. In many ways, it's humbling to pastor people who are more spiritually mature than I am in many areas. And many of you are. You've been following Jesus for a long time and you've done incredible things and you do incredible things. As we continue in this series, I think we have two more weeks. I want, you, I want you to just promise me that you will never hear me shaming you as I compare us to this early church, as I ask the question, are we shining the light on Jesus or on other stuff? But rather, I just want you to hear me inviting all of us to the table to make sure that Mercy Road is all about shining the light on Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this church. We thank you for this inspiring story of this woman who forgave. I just thank you for the privilege of, of being a part of your church. Thank you for the new members. Thank you for those watching online. We pray, Father, that you would be in our midst as we, some of us uh, gather in my home at, at a volunteer appreciation luncheon. And Lord, I just ask that you would Help us to live out all the things that your early church lived out. Help us to return to 
what we did at first, to, to have a vibrant, loving relationship with you consistently. And may that flow out. May we illuminate you because we're devoted to you in Jesus' name.